started. Um, sorry for the cramped conditions. We're absolutely delighted that so many of you wanted to come uh, and hear our speaker today. I think there may be some ways to squeeze around the edges of the room or to sit on the steps. We won't tell the fire marshal. Um, but in any event, we are also uh, taping this, and so we will put it up. Um, on our website so you can actually see the, the lecture also. So if, you, if anyone that you hear of got discouraged, you might tell them coming soon to a website near you. Um, so first let me just say, I'm uh, Kim Shapley, I'm the Director of the Program in Law and Public Affairs, um, and we're uh, thrilled to start a new venue. We don't usually have these things at noon, now we know we can get an audience, so thank you for letting us know all of that. Um, our speaker today um, is Professor Michael Barr who is a professor of law at the University of Michigan Law School. He's also a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and at the Brookings Institution. Um, as all of you know, and as I suspect the reason why you're here, um, he served in 2009-2010 um, as the US Department of Treasury's Assistant Secretary for Financial Institutions. And in that capacity, he was the key architect of the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act getting it through the Congress, pushing the Obama administration's position on all of this. Most of you will know the Dodd-Frank legislation, but just so in case you don't know, I will read you its official subtitle. <laughs> <laughs> An act to promote the financial stability of the United States by improving accountability and transparency in the financial system to end, quote, too big to fail, unquote, to protect the American taxpayer by ending bailouts, to protect consumers from abusive financial service practices, and for other purposes. So that's the, that's the subtitle. Um, now, how did Michael Barr get into this position? Well, well, actually, I should mention that in the course of doing this, he received the Alexander Hamilton Award for Distinguished Leadership, which is Treasury's highest honor. And he got that award in 2010. So he started by, well, we always start with education, right? He's speaking at university. Um, he graduated summa cum laude from Yale with honors in history. He was a Rhodes Scholar at Marlborough College, Oxford, where he did an MPhil in international relations. He received his JD from Yale Law School and went to clerk for Judge Pierre Laval. I've just learned a very charismatic figure. I'm really famous, <laughs> but I've now heard some personal testimonies to Laval's charisma. Of the Southern, he was in the Southern District of New York. Um, and then uh, Professor Barr became a law clerk to Justice David Souter at the US Supreme Court. Um, he had done a prior stint uh, in government in the Clinton administration. He was a special advisor to President Clinton as well as the executive director of the Federal District of Columbia Task Force of the Office of Management and Budget. And he did all of that while concurrently serving as Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Treasury. Um, in his academic life, Michael Barr conducts large-scale empirical research regarding financial services and low and moderate income households. And he also researches and writes about a wide range of issues in financial regulation. Um, he has a huge string of law review articles as well as two recent co-edited books, one called Building Inclusive Financial Systems and another one called Insufficient Funds. Um, it's very rare when we get such a high-level policymaker who is also such a distinguished academic and someone who, as befits our Woodrow Wilson tradition, works both in empirical research and in policy. And so with all of that, I'm really glad and pleased to present to you Professor Michael Barr. Thank you very much uh, for that warm introduction. Thanks to all of you for being here. Um, I like to think that uh, it had something to do with the speaker, but I'm, I'm uh, much more convinced that it had something to do with the great chocolate chip cookies that are um, available in the corridor. So those of you who have not yet had one, I suggest that any time during the lecture when you're bored, you go get yourself a, a good sugar hit. Uh, 
The, um, the topic today I want to talk about uh, is uh, the financial crisis and the path of reform, uh, which um, we are still on. That is, we are both still on the path of reform and in some ways uh, globally are still in the financial uh, crisis. About three years ago, uh, the United States and the global economy um, faced what was uh, even in that very moment, the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. And in my view, the crisis was rooted in many years of unconstrained excess, uh, unconstrained excess on Wall Street and in major global financial capitals around the world, uh, as well as prolonged complacency in Washington and in global financial capitals around the world. The crisis made painfully clear what we should have, in my view, always known. That finance can't be left to regulate itself. That consumer markets permitted to profit on the basis of tricks and traps rather than to compete on the basis of price and of quality will ultimately put us all at risk. That financial markets function best when there are clear rules and transparency and accountability. And that markets break down and sometimes break down catastrophically when there are not. For many years, a core strength of the US financial system had been a regulatory structure that sought a balance, a careful balance between incentives for innovation on the one hand and protections from excessive risk taking and abuse on the other. And over time, those great strengths were undermined. And the careful mix of protections we created eventually eroded with the development of new products and markets for which those basic protections had not been designed. And our regulatory system as a whole found itself outgrown and outmaneuvered by the institutions and markets that it was supposed to be regulating. In particular, I want to point out the growth of the shadow banking system that permitted financial institutions to engage in maturity transformation with too little transparency, too little capital, and too little oversight. The years leading up to the crisis saw the significant growth of large and short-funded and substantially interconnected financial firms. Huge amounts of risk moved outside the more regulated parts of the banking system to where it was easier to increase leverage. Legal loopholes and regulatory gaps allowed large parts of the financial industry to operate without the required oversight. And entities performing the same market functions as banks escape meaningful regulation on the basis of their corporate form. Banks themselves could move activities off balance sheet and outside the reach of more stringent regulation. Derivative products were traded in the shadows with insufficient capital to back those trades. Repo markets became riskier as collateral shifted from treasuries to poorer quality asset-based securities. The lack of transparency and securitization hit a growing wedge, a growing wedge in the incentives facing different players in the system, and failed to require sufficient responsibility from those who made loans, who packaged loads, and sold them to investors. <coughs> Even more so, synthetic products multiplied risks in the securitization system. And the financial sector as a whole, under the guise of innovation, piled risk upon ill-considered risk. As the shadow banking system grew, our system as a whole failed to require real transparency, sufficient capital, and meaningful oversight. Rapid growth in these keyed markets hid the misaligned incentives and the underlying risk. And financial innovation, financial innovation 
often outpace the ability of market participants, of private sector gatekeepers, and of regulators to understand these risks and to adjust. And throughout our system, we had inadequate capital buffers, as both market participants and regulators failed to account for these new risks appropriately. Short-term rewards in financial products and rapidly growing markets overwhelmed or blinded private sector gatekeepers and swamped those parts of the system that were supposed to mitigate risk. Consumer and investor protections were weakened, and households took on risks that they often did not fully understand and could ill afford. Now, rising home prices and rising prices in other assets had helped to feed this financial system's rapid growth and also to hide the declining underwriting standards and other underlying key problems in the origination and securitization of all kinds of assets, but especially of mortgages. And when home prices began to flatten and then to decline, these fault lines that had always been present were revealed. The asset implosion in housing led to cascades throughout the financial system and then to contagion from weaker firms to stronger ones. Failures in the shadow banking system also led to failures in the more regulated parts of the banking system, and failures in the banking system led to further failures throughout the market. And then in the fall of 2008, as you all are undoubtedly aware, our markets froze. And the over-reliance on short-term financing, opaque markets, and excessive risk-taking that had been a source of significant profit on Wall Street and in financial capitals globally fanned a panic that nearly collapsed the global financial system. Comprehensive reform was undoubtedly essential. In July 2010, the President signed into law the Dodd-Frank Act. The Act, in my view, provides for appropriate and strong supervision of major firms based on what they do, rather than on their corporate form. Shadow banking is brought into the regulatory daylight. The largest financial firms were required to build up their capital and liquidity buffers constrain their relative size and place restrictions on their riskiest financial activities. The Act comprehensively regulates derivatives markets for the first time, including requirements for exchange trading, central clearing, transparency, capital and margin. And the Act provides for data collection and transparency throughout the marketplace. Again, in my view, I think this Act uh, creates essential uh, mechanisms for the government to orderly wind down and to liquidate failing financial firms without putting taxpayers at risk. And the Act creates a new Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and provides for additional important consumer and investor protections. In sum, the Act provides a strong foundation on which the U.S. must now carefully build a more stable and a more balanced regulatory system. Now, with your indulgence, let me discuss each of these areas in somewhat greater detail. Before Dodd-Frank, if an entity were a bank, then it had tougher regulation, it had more stringent capital requirements, and more robust supervision. But if an entity were an investment bank engaged in the same activities, it played by different rules. For example, when U.S. investment banks needed to find a consolidated holding company regulator in order to meet European Union standards for doing business in Europe, the SEC set up a voluntary consolidated supervised entity regime with no oversight and weak capital requirements. The SEC was not established as a prudential regulator, did not have clear regulatory oversight for these holding companies, 
and had little experience and few trained examiners. Moreover, the leverage requirement that served as a backstop for capital regulation on banks was not applied to investment banks. In effect, the system allowed large financial institutions to choose a regulator that would offer more, excuse me, offer less restrictive supervision. The Federal Reserve did not have the authority to set and enforce capital requirements on these major institutions that operated outside of bank holding companies. That meant it had no supervision over investment banks, diversified financial institutions like AIG, or the non-bank financial companies competing with banks in the mortgage, consumer credit, and business lending markets. The Office of Thrift Supervision viewed its role as supervising thrifts, not their holding companies like AIG. And regulators of banks permitted both banks and thrifts themselves to engage in risky mortgage lending, either directly or more commonly through unregulated affiliates, stepping in with guidance only when it was too late. Today, the Dodd-Frank Act has provided authority for clear, strong, and consolidated supervision and regulation by the Federal Reserve of any firm, regardless of its legal form, whose failure could pose a threat to financial stability. We can have a single point of accountability for tougher and more stringent supervision of the largest and most interconnected financial firms. All bank holding companies will be supervised by the Fed, and the largest ones will be subject to heightened standards. The Office of Thrift Supervision has been abolished, and all savings and loan holding companies will be supervised by the Fed. Non-bank financial institutions, such as Lehman Brothers, designated by the Financial Stability Oversight Council, will also be Fed supervised. And the voluntary investment bank holding company regime at the SEC has ended. Dodd-Frank provides for more stringent prudential standards for these major bank and non-bank firms. The Fed is charged with putting in place stronger requirements for capital and liquidity. Annual stress tests are being conducted on these firms. There are enhanced rules on affiliate transactions, lending limits, and counterparty credit exposures. The Fed is required to use a form of macroprudential supervision, which is designed to take into account not only the risks within the institution, but the, insti the risks that that institution poses to the system as a whole. Major firms will be subject to a concentration limit that generally prohibits a financial company from engaging in mergers or acquisitions that would result in the firm's liabilities exceeding 10% of the liabilities of financial companies as a whole. And these enhanced prudential measures for major financial firms, in my view, are likely to reduce the risks in the financial system and reduce distortions from the so-called too-big-to-fail subsidy. Before Dodd-Frank, no regulator or supervisor had the legal authority or responsibility to look across the full sweep of the financial system. Today, while the regulatory infrastructure is still very far from ideal, with too many divided responsibilities, at the very least, the Financial Stability Oversight Council, established under the Dodd-Frank Act, is accountable to identify threats to financial stability across the system and to address them. This council will have access to information across the full financial services marketplace. And a new Office of Financial Research is empowered to collect data from any financial firm and to develop and enforce standardization for such data collection. Before the Dodd-Frank Act, the OTC derivatives market, the over-the-counter market, had a notional value of $700 trillion at its peak. This market grew up in the shadows with little oversight. Credit derivatives, which were supposed to diffuse risk 
instead concentrated it. Synthetic securitization with embedded derivatives. These are uh, products that have nothing in them other than derivative bets. These synthetic products magnified failures in the real securitization market. And major financial firms used derivatives to increase their credit exposure to each other rather than to decrease it. In my view, we should not again face a situation such as AIG's $2 trillion CDS exposure, deriv credit derivatives portfolio, where the potential failure of a virtually unregulated capital deficient player in the derivatives market can impose such devastating costs on the financial system. The opacity of this market meant that the government and market participants did not have enough information about the location of risk exposures in the system or the extent of the mutual interconnections among large firms. So when the crisis began, regulators, financial firms, and investors had an insufficient understanding of the extent to which trouble at one firm spelled trouble at another. This lack of information magnified contagion from one firm to the other in the crisis, causing a damaging wave of margin increases, deleveraging, and credit market breakdowns. And a lack of transparency, insufficient supervision, and inadequate capital left our financial system vulnerable to concentrations of risk and abuse. Today, regulators are beginning to put in place the tools to comprehensively regulate this derivatives market for the first time. The Act provides for regulation and transparency for transactions across the market. It provides for strong capital, prudential, and business conduct regulation for all dealers and other major swap participants in these markets. And it provides for enforcement tools to go after manipulation, fraud, and abuse. The Act requires all standardized derivatives to be centrally cleared, which will substantially reduce the buildup of bilateral counterparty credit risk among major players in the system. Central clearing will also be subject to strong prudential supervision. Such derivatives would be traded on exchanges or alternative swap execution facilities, which will impose pre- and post-trade price transparency. And this will enhance competition as well as improve safety and soundness in derivatives markets, as market participants and regulators will have full access to current prices in the event of system disruption. Even non-cleared derivatives, those that are still conducted over the counter, would be reported to a trade repository, making the market far more transparent. The Act provides for prudential regulation of the dealers and major players in these markets, so that adequate capital business conduct rules and prudential supervision will apply to all market participants. And there are robust capital and what are called initial margin requirements for derivatives transactions, so that there is a bigger buffer in the system in the event those transactions uh, don't take place as planned. Moreover, there are higher requirements for items that are not centrally cleared, which provides a strong incentive to use central clearing and a bigger buffer should problems arise in these over-the-counter derivative markets. At the same time as the Act reforms derivative markets, it also provides a new framework for regulation of what are called financial market utilities and critical payment, clearing, and settlement systems, including not only those in the derivatives markets, but also in another important part of the shadow banking system, the wholesale funding or repo markets that are critical to the growth of these institutions. In the lead up to the financial crisis, major financial firms increasingly relied not simply on traditional bank deposits for their funding, or even longer term funding in the commercial markets, but rather by overnight funding in the repo markets. 
And these markets became increasingly concentrated in two central clearing banks. As the market became more concentrated, it also became riskier. It became riskier in part because counterparties came to accept not only Treasury <coughs> securities as collateral for these transactions, but also highly rated asset-backed securities. And these securities in turn became riskier as credit rating agencies became increasingly willing to label as safe assets that were lower quality, especially pools of securities backed only by poorly underwritten loans made in the Alt-A and subprime market. When the financial crisis hit, these repo markets or overnight markets froze, causing a massive contraction in available credit, not just to the financial sector, but to commercial firms as a whole. And that was overcome only with massive Fed and Treasury intervention. The Dodd-Frank Act fundamentally reforms the wholesale markets by providing strong authority for the Federal Reserve to regulate these financial market utilities and critical systems, to set new rules for capital, collateral, and margin and to establish uniform prudential standards across the market. These sets of reforms taken as a whole will have the effect of taxing short-term liabilities and forcing firms to internalize more of the costs of this funding system. The Act also fundamentally transforms the last major element of the shadow banking system, securitization. The Act requires deep transparency into the structure of securitizations including information about assets and originators. Securitization sponsors, the entity that put together the, the securitizations, must generally retain risk in the securitizations that they sponsor, so that incentives are better aligned among participants in the system. Capital rules will better account for actual risk in these securitizations, and parallel changes in accounting rules will now bring the most common forms of securitization onto the balance sheet. Credit rating agencies will be subject to comprehensive oversight by the SEC, including policing of rating shopping and conflicts of interest, including uh, uh, much more information about the ratings themselves, making them much more transparent with key information about methodology, compliance, and the like, and underlying quantitative and qualitative data, as well as information about the extent to which due diligence was followed. In the realm of consumer protection, before the Dodd-Frank Act, consumer protection regulation was fragmented over seven federal regulators, most of which chose to focus their energies in areas other than protecting consumers. Regulators lacked mission focus, market-wide coverage, and consolidated authority. Non-banks could avoid federal supervision. Banks could choose the least restrictive bank regulator for consumer approaches among several different banking agencies. Federal regulators preempted state consumer protection laws without adequately replacing these important safeguards. And fragmentation of rule writing, of supervision, and of an enforcement led to finger pointing in place of effective action. Today, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has market-wide coverage. The Bureau will focus on more effective regulation and be able to set high and uniform standards across the financial services market. It can help to end misleading sales pitches and hidden fee traps. And rather, it can help to set a level playing field for banks and non-banks alike to compete for consumers on the basis of price and of quality. And the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, though it does not yet have a confirmed director, is already very much up and running. I was speaking to its uh, general counsel uh, earlier today. There are nearly 700 people uh, already on staff at the Bureau uh, doing their important work.
Before the Dodd-Frank Act, the government finally, I should say, did not have the authority to unwind large and highly leveraged and substantially interconnected financial firms that failed. Firms like Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, and AIG without disrupting the broader financial system. Many of these firms benefited from the perception that they were too big to fail. And this presumption reduced market discipline and encouraged excessive risk taking. It provided an artificial incentive for these firms to grow and it created an unlevel playing field. When the financial crisis hit, it left the government with the untenable choice between bailouts and financial collapse. Today, major financial firms will now be subject to heightened prudential standards, including higher capital and liquidity requirements, the stress tests I mentioned, and living wills to describe how they would be wound down. Major financial firms will be required by these standards to internalize more of the costs that they might impose on the system. And that will give them incentives to shrink and to reduce their complexity, their leverage, and their interconnections. Should such a firm fare, fail, there will also now be a larger capital buffer to absorb losses, as I will explain in a moment. These measures will help to reduce risks in the system in and among these large financial institutions. In the event that the financial institutions fail, these actions will minimize risk that any individual firm's failure could pose system-wide risks, risks to the instability of the entire financial system. But the crisis also showed that even in the event that these positions are in place. The US government needs to have the tools to respond effectively when the failure of one or more financial institutions may threaten financial stability. And that's why the act permits the government in limited circumstances to resolve the largest and most interconnected financial companies with an approach that is consistent with the kind of approach that the FDIC has long taken for bank failures. And in many ways, this is a final step in addressing the problem of moral hazard. To make sure we have the capacity to break apart or unwind or to operate major non-financial firms in an orderly fashion, in a way that limits collateral damage to the system. Under the orderly liquidation authority established in the Act, the FDIC is provided with the tools to wind down a major financial firm on the brink of failure. Shareholders and other providers of regulatory capital to the firm will be forced to absorb losses. Management will be terminated. Critical assets and liabilities of the firm can be transferred to what is called a bridge institution. And liquidity can be obtained through treasury borrowing to permit that bridge institution to run. And that borrowing is automatically repaid from the assets of the failed firm or if necessary from an ex post assessment on the largest financial firms, not from taxpayers. In that manner, the resolution authority allows the government to wind down a firm without exposing the system to a sudden disorderly failure that puts the financial sector as a whole at risk. But we do need to have some humility about the ability to predict every system, systemic failure of a major financial firm. And to be sure, the creation of domestic resolution authority is not enough. While the United States is implementing the Dodd-Frank Act, it's also critical that global reforms proceed as well. In particular, the United States needs to continue to press for progress on global resolution authorities, derivatives regulation, and capital requirements around the world. Resolution of major firms will require international cooperation. And that's why it's so critical that other nations implement resolution authorities and participate in joint efforts to supervise international firms. It's critical that major financial capitals implement a derivatives framework 
that requires adequate capital and robust margining, that moves to central clearing and exchange trading, and that provides for full transparency. Now on capital, I mentioned there are significant changes in the work. There's a process that's underway um, under the, um, uh, the joint work of central bankers and bank regulators under the supervision of uh, finance ministries and ultimately of uh, the G20 leaders called the Basel Capital Reform Process. And under what is now known as Basel III, minimum capital ratios are set at a level that will represent a significant increase in firm requirements. These new requirements include the creation of a capital conservation buffer above the minimums, which if breached would restrict firms' ability to pay dividends or to buy back stock or engage in certain bonus activities. The Basel Committee has proposed a graduated risk-based capital surcharge for the largest, most interconnected financial firms. The Basel Committee is also examining how to use new contingent capital instruments in which debt transforms into equity under specified circumstances to further reinforce that firms must internalize the cost of their failure. That process is also raising the quality of capital. The new capital requirements focus on common equity, excluding other liabilities did, that did not serve as a source of cushion or a buffer to absorb losses in the last financial crisis. So for example, there will be strict limits in the capital calculation on the aggregate contribution of investments in other financial institutions. Moreover, Basel is increasing the capital required for trading positions, securitization, and counterparty credit exposures, including for derivatives and secured tra uh, lending transactions. And for the first time, that process will be introducing a new internationally applied leverage ratio, a basic backstop that we have had in the US that has been missing globally. Furthermore, the Basel uh, III system will institute explicit quantitative liquidity requirements for the first time to ensure that financial firms are better prepared for liquidity strains. While the international community has a long way to go, and I remain concerned particularly about the pace of change in Europe on derivatives, on capital, on resolution, uh, this is enormous progress. The U.S. had an urgent obligation to fix the challenges that threatened our financial system and that helped to trigger the worst global crisis since the Great Depression. The crisis, as you all are painfully aware, caused a recession that cost American families and American businesses dearly. In my judgment, the Dodd-Frank Act puts in place the key reforms that were necessary to establish a firm foundation for financial stability and for economic growth in the decades ahead. Now, of course, there is still much work to be done today both in implementing financial reform and in growing the economy more broadly. Our economy remains deeply fragile. Millions of Americans remain out of work. Too many families are still underwater on their mortgages. Too many businesses remain reluctant to hire. Our political system in Washington has been dangerously dysfunctional. With debates over the debt ceiling, for example, the debt ceiling is, the question over the debt ceiling was, should the U.S. pay bills for its obligations already incurred? Just so we're not confused about what we were arguing about. The debate over that question seriously harmed both the good name and reputation of the United States and consumer confidence in our economy. And while President Obama has put forward a plan to boost job growth, most political observers are not sanguine about its passage. 
and the so-called super committee, the bipartisan super committee in Congress charged with deficit reduction has just failed. Meanwhile, the financial crisis in Europe has dragged on for nearly two years with little end in sight. Indeed, with the crisis now moving from the periphery straight to the core. China and other countries in Asia are facing a range of internal economic problems and the Chinese growth rate appears highly unlikely to be sustainable. So globally, there appears to be little way of stimulating or boosting aggregate demand. Despite my pessimism, which you undoubtedly detect about the current state of the economy in Washington, uh, current state of the economy and the political dynamics in Washington, I remain hopeful that we can and will do much better. And I remain hopeful uh, both as a dispositional matter and as a matter of uh, history. The U.S. has many times before found itself in dire economic straits with politics gone deeply awry and has nonetheless uh, in fits and in starts uh, after many errors and mistakes found its way forward. And so undoubtedly shall we today. Thank you very much. I'd be, I'd be happy to take uh, questions. Yeah, in the um, back. So the Dodd-Frank bill increases transparency for previously OTC derivatives. Do you think that over the long term it might stifle creativity in the creation of these derivatives? I think there's always a balance in thinking about um, financial regulation. There's not uh, a simple answer. Um, in, uh, if you look at where risk is created in the financial system, risk is created through innovation. You need innovation and you need risk-taking for the financial system to grow. And you need risk-taking and you need innovation for serving, having the financial uh, services industry serve our broader economy. So how do you develop a set of regulations that permit, that enhance, that uh, foster innovation and risk-taking without blowing up the country and imposing costs on the rest of us? And that's really the balance that's trying to be struck. I think that overall, that balance is pretty well struck in the derivatives title of the bill. It's not perfect. I don't, I don't think any legislation is. But I think that balance is pretty well struck. It puts a lot of incentives to move um, where possible to central clearing and exchange trading, which will build greater resiliency in the system. And it says if you need to innovate and you need to um, take risks through the private uh, OTC market, the over-the-counter market, through bilateral trades um, in products that are not standardized, you need to have a bigger capital buffer and you need to have more margin requirements. So that it's less likely that the risk that you're generating through that innovation will be pushed to somebody else instead of absorbed by you. Yes. Yeah, there, there's a, there's a, a long-running debate about, about this. That is, um, should we have a system in which the central bank is um, separated from supervisory functions? Um, and uh, the, um, the, the case for that is to let the Fed focus on, it, on its sort of core monetary responsibilities and have an agency that is expert in supervision focus on uh, supervision. The, um, 
the counter argument to that is um, that having the Federal Reserve operate without a clear window and clear transparency into the banking system means that it's highly likely to make significant errors of judgment, uh, about, both about monetary policy and about its role as a lender of last resort in the event of um, system-wide disruption. And I think that the experience that, um, that the UK had with its separated system of um, having supervision in the FSA and having um, monetary policy exclusively in the, in, the, um, in the Bank of England demonstrates some of the risks of that approach. Uh, so we thought on balance that the um, risks of having a dual mission at the Fed were lower than the risks of having a Fed that didn't know what was going on in the financial sector. Besides the problems you mentioned in turn to the finance, uh, two things that appeared uh, to be in play over uh, perhaps a generation now, increasing disconnect between finance and production, uh, and two, the unbridled uh, global mobility depriving national policy to having uh, checks on that. So irrespective of whether uh, uh, Frank Dodd is as good as, as uh, you suggest uh, or, or seriously or flawed uh, as others argue. It, it does not uh, or perhaps cannot address these two issues, namely to reconnect finance with production and to, to bring uh, unbridled mobility and, and some, some check of national policy. So how, how can um, simply regulation of finance as it were internal regulation address these two <coughs> the serious issues uh, and, and help the economies and what have you? So, so um, uh, let me address the second one um, uh, first. So uh, I, it, is, it is clearly the case that having solely having national regulation with respect to finance is woefully inadequate. Um, and that's why, you know, really from the beginning of the time in January 2009 that we started working on the Dodd-Frank Act, Treasury was also very much engaged in uh, what, what became this capital process that I've described, um, the creation and st stabilization of existing international cooperation through something called the Financial um, uh, Stability Board, and the involvement of the G20 leaders because there was a recognition that you couldn't just have a single set of rules. You can have national variation. I, I, I think you can overplay the need for harmonization, but there has to be at least some basic agreement to the things that matter the most. Uh, and so, for example, having uh, global capital rules, to my mind, that have a minimum floor is absolutely essential, and that's, again, why everybody pushed so hard for the new, the new changes in, um, in capital that I think will make a significant difference. And also why it matters that we don't have a, just have a U.S. framework for derivatives. It doesn't really help if, um, uh, if all the derivatives transactions can be, uh, can get around the rules by occurring in, in London. Uh, so the European framework needs to be in place. Similarly, uh, there's been some progress in Asia in developing a parallel framework, but it's not, it's not nearly as far along. And the United States has been pushing on those levers to say you have to, uh, you guys have to play too. So I think that's absolutely critical. Um, there's no way to cut off the fact that finance is global and it wouldn't be good for the, for the global economy anyway. So the question is how do you 
work together in a system of cooperation um, that permits that kind of agreement to occur. And I think there's been progress, but it's not all the way there. Now, the, the, the first point, I think, is somewhat um, uh, uh, more, um, more complex. So I, I wouldn't have said that finance is dissociated from the productive function. Um, uh, certainly, the, um, the growth of the financial sector in many ways is required for an increase in, in the real economy, for continued growth and innovation in the real economy. And when, um, when the financial, uh, when the financial um, sector is um, retrenching or in crisis, as it was in the fall of 2008, it was certainly not disassociated from, um, from the productive uh, means in, in our society. It crushed it, just decimated it. Uh, crust businesses, big businesses, small businesses, households, you name it, were wiped out because the financial sector is connected to the real economy. Now, that doesn't mean everything the financial sector does contributes to production in the real economy. A lot of what the financial sector does is good for the financial sector, um, and it generates tax revenue for societies, so that's a positive, but uh, is not uh, a synthetic, um, a synthetic uh, collateralized debt obligation in which uh, financial parties exchange long and short positions on mortgage-backed securities does not help anybody buy a house. Uh, but um, overall, the financial system and its health and innovation and growth do contribute and can contribute to the productive economy. And when the financial sector fails, it hurts all of us. Yes? So you said that the new rules will require, uh, will prohibit the merger of any two companies who would combine have more than 10% of all system liabilities. What happens if some firm manages to accrue 10% of liabilities without merger? So the, 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 um, the liability limit is a soft limit. It's a relative limit in the um, sense that, uh, uh, first of all, it's a limit in relation to other companies in the economy. And second of all, it's a soft limit in the sense that there's no hard cap. So a firm can continue to grow uh, what's called organically uh, as long as um, it's not merging, or merging with or acquiring other institutions. So it is not a, um, uh, um, it would be wrong to think of it as the sole answer to the problem of large firms in our economy. Yeah, in the back. Could you speak a lot louder? Sure, I'm sorry. You spoke of a highly partisan climate in Washington that sometimes stymies action. I was wondering when you were designing with your team the Dodd Frank Act, how did you seek to reconcile um, partisan differences? We we um we tried very hard and had a, a very modest amount of success, but fortunately that was all we needed um, to get the bill passed. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, we um. We tried really hard all along the way to work with, um, with Republican members um, on the bill, and we uh, modified the bill a lot of times along the way in response to Republican suggestions, um, uh, in part um, when we thought the suggestions were good, and in part when we thought that they would demonstrate that we were serious about trying to have a bipartisan bill, even if we disagreed with the substance, as long as it wasn't going to a core what we thought of as a core issue, and actually sometimes even when we thought it was going to something on the core, if we could build support for the bill. And uh, you know, I, I should say there, there were a number of um, quite active members of, um, of the Republican caucus 
uh, on the legislation who, uh, whose ideas we incorporated into the bill, who ultimately didn't vote for the bill, who wish they had um, been able to vote for the bill, but were not able to because their caucus politics would not permit it. Uh, so, uh, and I, you know, I respect that. They have jobs and they, they need to do their jobs, and part of their job sometimes is taking a partisan position because they need to for their own, um, uh, for, for the structure of their own um, uh, uh, work. But, but even in those instances, those um, House and Senate Republicans often offered quite constructive suggestions and many of them were open to uh, quite, you know, quite a good dialogue. So even though the final result in the bill um, was that we only had a handful of um, Republicans vote procedurally to permit the bill to go forward in the Senate, that was enough to get it done and many of their ideas are incorporated in the legislation. Many of their ideas and ideas of others who voted against the bill are, are incorporated in the legislation. Yes, George. How do you view the uh, evolving discussions about the introduction of some form of financial transactions, COVID uh, tax? Uh, obviously, the British government has been stridently opposed. And as I recall, in a recent meeting, the Obama administration gave some support to the British position, but it wasn't really the full throated uh, support. Um, the Euro center countries seem determined push forward with that, and of course such taxes already exist in such bastions of uh, financial freedom in Singapore. <laughs> Is this possible to weigh, referring back to what uh, for governments to gain some leverage again over capital movements and, and uh, lower financial um, I, I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's a way of gaining leverage, but I'm actually uh, quite sympathetic to the idea of um, different forms of uh, financial sp uh, stability kinds of taxes. Um, now you can think of tax and capital as being uh, two kinds of instruments for internalizing cost. So the fact that we were able to get quite a significant uptick in the global capital rules for financial institutions um, is kind of an alternative to a tax that goes into um, into, into government, the capital rules mean that um, the same level of risk in the system will have much bigger buffers and it is more costly for firms um, uh, to, to uh, engage in that capital structure. So I do think that there are um, uh, tra some trade-offs between capital and tax. Now, within tax itself, um, the administration had, um, uh, the Obama administration had proposed a, what we called a um, financial responsibility fee which is a kind of tax that um, we had suggested the Congress impose um, that uh, was commensurate with the riskiness of the assets and liabilities of the firm. It was graduated, risk-based graduated tax. Um, uh, Congress uh, declined to follow our, our views on that. Um, uh, I view the idea behind, I think it's possible to structure a financial transaction tax that is like that in the sense that it can be weighted towards um, uh, uh, trading in more risky assets at, at, in a way that um, uh, would unlikely to have its incidence fall on normal people trading in regular markets. But it's difficult to design such a task. Uh, I, I think either of those should have a, you know, I think the debate over those, either of those, um, you know, is, is appropriate. And I, I think there are ways of designing either of them that are could be reasonably effective. 
uh, if, um, if agreed on a, um, not necessarily a uniform basis, but a globally coordinated basis, um, uh, it's possible to construct such a financial transactions tax. Now, the thing that the Europeans are worried about is, um, is obviously, in the UK in particular, um, if there's a, if there's a Europe-wide uh, financial transactions tax and there isn't one in Asia and there isn't one in the US, uh, it's very easy to book transactions somewhere else and to avoid the tax. And then you haven't raised revenue or changed behavior. It's not really much point in doing it. Yeah. Sure. I mean, look, any of you who have studied um, um, uh, legislation know that any legislation requires agencies to implement them according to rules. Even something like um, pick an area where Congress tends to legislate in extreme, extremely minute detail, the tax code. Um, the tax code requires even more interpretation by the IRS. And then after that, there's still a very large gray area that the private sector fights about with the IRS all the time. So it's an inescapable fact that if you live in a complex world and you're regulating in a complex world, you will need legislation, you will need regulation, you will need implementation. It's just, and you will not eliminate discretion or judgment or, or um, the need for a human decision maker in the system. Uh, so. Uh, that, that, you know, basic point one. Basic point two, there's a lot of detail in the Dodd-Frank Act. Um, so sometimes I, um, I'm surprised I'll have a debate with a, a colleague or, um, uh, or, or someone about the bill, and they'll say, why didn't you do X? And I'll say, well, we did. They'll say, why didn't you, for example, uh, regulate broker conduct that was at the heart of the mortgage crisis instead of just creating this new behemoth of a consumer financial protection agency. And I'll say, well, we did. Uh, so partly there is some misunderstanding about um, the content of the bill that can only be rectified by actually reading it. Uh, I had a big, no, I, uh, anyway, you get the basic point. And then um, the, the, uh, the, you know, the third point I make is there are some areas where you really, really, really don't want Congress to set the rules. You want to leave it to the discretion of an expert regulatory agency that can adopt and change over time with the market. Um, one of the things, for example, that Congress did really well um, is they set a very clear capital rule for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac um, that the regulator could not really change. And it was a low, stupid level that did not change with the risk that Fannie and Freddie were taking on. Yes? Um, comments about um, any downside to the Volcker rule, um, mm -hmm. in particular, whether there's any adverse uh, impact on uh, liquidity in places like the corporate bond market. Um, 
And is there enough clarity on what's allowed and uh, what isn't allowed in terms of uh, proprietary trading versus market fishing? Um, I think that there's still a long way to go on implementation of the vocal rule to answer your question. So uh, there are some, um, if you look across the range of possible activities the vocal rule could touch with respect to, the, the, the aspect of the rule that's being asked about is um, when a bank or bank holding company engages in what's called proprietary trading, um, trading with its own money, there are rules that are invoked under the, under the vocal um, uh, provision. So, there's some sets of activities that are clearly prohibited by the statute and by the rule. Those are, those are activities where the financial institution sets up a desk and the job of that desk is to take the firm's own money and trade it in a short-term way for the firm's short-term profit. That's clearly not permitted in the vocal rule for a bank or bank holding company. I think that, um, that will, the enforcement of that rule is relatively straightforward, is being done already and will not have any effect on liquidity. Um, then there's a second set of activity that is clearly permissible under the statute, under the proposed rule, um, uh, under anybody's formulation. So things like um, the normal internal treasury functions of a bank are not affected by the rule. Then there's a big gray area in between that involves essentially um, what I think of as classic forms of financial intermediation. Uh, so uh, again, um, a bank acting as a market maker in a, in a financial product. Uh, and there I think the, the draft rule um, uh, was trying to balance the need to not, um, the need to not overly uh, uh, restrict market making activity, which everybody says is good and should occur, with concern about um, the ways in which market making can be used to evade the basic idea of position taking by the financial institution. And the draft rule tries out a large number of metrics to measure that. Um, and I think probably um, will end up being, um, need to be uh, simplified and made easier to comply with, or there could be some adverse effects on the ability of financial institutions to make markets. And so I think you know, that's the balance that the regulators are going to have to work through in the coming months. But I, I do think it's a real issue. Yeah? Um, I think I'm looking at your crystal ball in 10 years. Where do you see financial innovation coming more from the policy side, like 529 and 401k type of products, or, the, or Wall Street, um, given some of the restrictions on derivatives and stuff? Um, where is it a, where is it a part of <coughs> Um, I don't think of those as two different places, so I guess I'm having trouble understanding. Uh, so the financial sector innovates with financial products, and then the question is, are those products good things that help people in the economy, or do they blow up? And uh, if they blow up, who pays for them? So I, I hope that in the future, we're a little bit better at not having bad things blow up on human beings, but on banks. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a really tough area. Um, uh, so this is an area, um, uh, um, Eldar can smile in the corner. Um, this is an area where uh, little things disproportionately matter. Um, that is, the stuff that you're taught in policy school about um, how to construct incentives 
and how to use rules to change behavior miss 98% of what is wrong with the uh, loan modification process. So uh, why is it that we can't get mortgage servicers to figure out how not to lose documents? <laughs> Even if you pay them a lot of money not to lose it. Uh, why is it um, that um, borrowers who are offered good modifications won't take them? Um, why is it that um, servicers uh, can't figure out how to organize themselves to comply with state law, uh, even though they face now huge, uh, huge potential exposure? So the incentives and rules side, uh, Treasury tried a lot of different things to change those and probably not enough attention to the small things um, that, that matter a lot. Now, that doesn't mean that, that some of the other uh, levers couldn't be moved. So, um, for example, one of the things that the Federal Housing Finance Agency announced uh, several weeks ago is greater flexibility in the rules governing uh, uh, refinance programs. Those involve real trade-offs. There's no free, um, no free lunch. So, one of the things that matters a lot, for example, in what the FHFA announced is um, a reduction in legal exposure to servicers under what are called reps and warranties, representations and warranties, if they participate in the program. That will get more participation, but it would also mean that um, some activities of misconduct on the part of servicers and originators result in no liability for those firms. So you can think of it as in the bad sense is a backdoor bailout of the banks, right, if you're trying to categorize in a negative way. So plus, more people helped, minus banks engaged in behavior that they won't be um, uh, held liable for. Uh, so, so all those trade-offs um, exist. Similarly, uh, you could, uh, Treasury could increase the amount of payment that it's willing to make to, um, uh, to lenders to write off mortgage loans. There are such payments available. They could be increased. You would increase take up. You would also increase the number of loans that come into the government's control, that a uh, government's risk, that um, are going to fail. So it'll cost taxpayers more. And um, you also, again, provide greater value to the financial institution for their asset than might be justified. So it's just, it, it, it's. Um, it's a trade-off, and life's about choices. You could say we should make, the, the government should make different choices that um, err more on the side of helping more borrowers. And I think there's some justification to that, but it's not costless. Yes? Yeah, in what way did the uh, Dodd-Frank Act prevent a bigger fiasco at MF Global, or did the MF Global somehow fly under the radar? Um, no, I think that there are, um, there are aspects of what, um, went on in, um, in MF Global that would have been significantly helped um, had the Dodd-Frank Act been fully implemented at the time that the firm um, uh, caused trouble. Uh, and one of the most important of those is a proposed rule that would require much stricter segregation and not non-use of customer money, um, which is at the center of the problem that, um, that MF Global's regulators are currently facing. Um, there's a second um, problem at MF Global that um, the Dodd-Frank Act may or may not have addressed, and that is the coordination issues between the CFTC and SEC, um, both of whom regulate uh, MF Global. Uh, if the Financial Stability Oversight Council determines in the future that a firm like MF Global is potentially systemic, 
it would be designated as systemic and it would have a single uh, top, top tier regulator as the Fed. Uh, so they'd be able to see across the firm and take action. In the absence of that, you do have this coordination issue. Uh, are the CFTC and SEC really you know, sharing and playing nicely in the sandbox with each other? Um, and I should say, we looked, um, when I was at Treasury, we looked very hard at merging the SEC and CFTC. And there's no substantive case for them being separate. None. Uh, so the case is essentially that it was impossible to merge them. Um, both of them would have fought it tooth and nail. And more importantly, um, the congressional committees that oversee them would have fought it. So the agriculture committees oversee the CFTC and the banking committees oversee the SEC. And both of them, uh, to put it bluntly, raise a lot of money from the financial sector because they oversee those institutions. And the last thing they're going to do is let them be merged. Yes? Are you seeing the uh, improvement in the capability and people in the regulatory areas that you seem to infer was missing before the um, I think there is some increased capability, but I, I don't think that the primary issue is with the lack of capability of the regulatory structure. You can always do better. You need to have better people. They need to keep up with innovation or so on. But the basic idea was the wrong idea. So for example, uh, the Office of Thrift Supervision had the idea that, that was not a new idea, it was an old idea, that the thing they should worry about at AIG was whether AIG's, was expo AIG's little dinky thrift at the bottom of its structure was exposed to risk from being in the holding company. So all they did was look at the thrift, and they looked at the little uh, transactions the thrift was having. And there's this thing out here called AIG financial products selling $2 trillion of credit derivatives. And they said, that's not us. So, it's not really a question so much of capacity, although it is also that. It's, are we asking the right questions in the system? And I think now we are better aligned to ask the right questions. Yes? Uh, presumably, Mr. Corzine and his pals knew what they were doing, but the customer's money was the wrong thing. How do you catch that in time? Um, uh, you know, first of all, I don't know anything about the facts of MF Global, I should be clear, other than what I read in the newspaper. So um, uh, I don't know the answer to the question of who knew what when. Um, it's clear, it seems clear, if the reporting on what happened is right, that somebody in that institution took customer money and gave it to counterparties. Um, but I don't, know, I don't know any underlying facts other than what I read in the paper. Um, one way you do that is by having um, stricter rules that um, cabin the segregation of customer money. So uh, you don't just have to have it as an accounting entity in the firm, but it has to be legally separate from the firm, bankruptcy remote from the firm, and the segregated funds can't be um, lent out for other purposes. And the old rules on segregation were weak, and so they're easier to violate and, e and harder to detect. So having better rules, I think, will help. And you've got to step up uh, enforcement. It means um, giving uh, much bigger fines when you discover problems and having more enforcement resources brought to bear. And you know, one of the challenges in this environment is that um, uh, the CFTC and the SEC, unlike the bank regulators and the Consumer Bureau, 
um, need to have their appropriations approved by the Congress. Uh, and the Congress has um, uh, not given them enough uh, funding to fully implement the act. The CFTC in particular is quite at risk um, and just saw Congress cut its funding, cut its proposed funding increase that was really needed for implementation back. So it's really, CFTC is operating at basically a flat level from this, this year to next when it needs to be significantly ramping up. Yes. Um, so my question is about creation of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Um, one unanticipated consequence of which may prove to be Senator Warren. Um, <laughs> the, um, so the banks have to be careful what they wish for. <laughs> you never know what's happening in that. Um, the, uh, so it's set up in an interesting way as a sort of an independent agency, not a traditional multi-member bipartisan commission with a single head, but the single head can be fired only for cause. Mm -hmm. um, and so essentially an independent mm -hmm. agency. And you know, in principle, <clears throat> you ought to set up a, something as an independent agency if expertise is at a premium and not if accountability is at a premium. But it's not clear Congress ever actually takes that kind of question through, and there are political science explanations for when this happens. And I'm just wondering, what explains that particular structure for this agency? Um, well, let me, um, let me answer uh, somewhat in the, in the abstract and then in the particulars of where it ended up. So um, uh, in the abstract, we were trying to create an agency that would be um, more insulated from uh, the toing and froing of the political process um, in, um, uh, in the Congress that would be uh, insulated from the executive branch, particularly with respect to the kinds of adjudications it would undertake and enforcement actions it would undertake, similar to the way that we have the OCC, the Office of Control of the Currency, which is the national bank regulator. The prudential regulator is technically inside the Treasury Department, but with respect to anything that it does, other than basically take out the trash, it's fully independent. Um, and um, actually, even with respect to taking out the trash, the OCC would argue that it's actually independent. But there are disputes about that particular thing. Um, Washington's a great place. Uh, so, um, so, so to achieve that level of, of uh, independence was really quite important. It was also important to us to have an agency that was accountable, but there are lots of different ways of building accountability into an agency. So one way you, you do that is by having a, a Senate-confirmed, um, uh, presidentially-nominated Senate-confirmed director who testifies to the Congress. You have a um, in our case, uh, for the CFPB, we wanted the budget to be insulated from appropriations, but we didn't want budget review to not occur. So there is formal budget review by the GAO, formal budget review um, by the Congress, formal presentation of the budget to the Congress, requirements for periodic reporting to the, to the, the Congress um, uh, on what's going on at the, at the agency, and then a set of actions um, that are um, designed to help the public hold the agency more accountable. So uh, obligations for periodic review, obligations for transparency and the like. Now the particular um, form of the agency um, uh, I, I want to talk about is in two respects. One is its, um, its uh, geographic placement, if you will, and the second is the choice of a commissioner versus a, a, a single head. Um, the, um, the choice of a commissioner versus single head, I think you can go back and forth on. I don't think it's actually that um, critical. My read of the evidence on single heads versus um, commissions is that they tend to 
flip with the president as much as each other. Um, so the kinds of check that you might get from having bipartisanship or having a commission of the kind, we want an agency that is um, separate from the president, you don't get so much purchase from. You do get a bunch of purchase from making sure that the director or whoever's there is only removable for cause and has a term that's longer than the term of the president, uh, both of which are in the act. Now the particular, um, and, and I should say, uh, our initial proposal had a commission in it. It was not a partisan commission, but it was a commission. Um, and the Congress preferred the other approach, mostly because it's impossible to get anybody confirmed and they were worried the agency would never get started. Now, the agency is under this peculiar place. We, um, uh, in our initial proposal, we had it uh, 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 to be um, uh, sort of given birth to and launched into the world out of the Treasury Department, and then it was just its own thing. Um, in the final compromise, a number of Republicans wanted to be able to say uh, that they didn't vote for the creation of a, a totally new government agency. Um, and so, uh, technically, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, when it is fully launched, um, will be part of the Federal Reserve System, although wholly independent from it. Um, so uh, there you have it. Um, sometimes you do things that um, have only, that, that, that are literally impossible to explain. <laughs> yeah. The failure of MS Global, eighth largest bankruptcy in U.S. history, was rooted in speculation on European sovereign debt, which seems to be the biggest overhanging crisis that could cause a systemic run on uh, banks and uh, austerity measures combined, slowing economies. What exists in the overseas regulatory network, both Europe-wide and individual countries, which you said still has a long way to go, that can help prevent the contagion and a, a very serious collapse of financial markets? Well, I, I think you're right that the, the, the biggest risk facing the global economy today is the, is the sovereign debt crisis in Europe. And I think, unfortunately, the problems there have been known for, um, for basically two years. Um, and I think that uh, the Europeans right now are suffering from a common problem in financial crises, which is if you try and do small things and you do them a little bit late, um, they don't really help. Uh, so the too little, too late problem in Europe is now uh, moved that crisis, which was, in my judgment, an extremely manageable, small issue with respect largely but not exclusively to Greek debt. And Greece can't pay. That's the basic problem. Not, not that subtle, um, moved that problem into a core problem about the survival of the European um, uh, economic system. And it didn't, it didn't need to be that way, but it certainly is now. And I think very much uh, the European project, if you will, is at risk. Um, so, um, and I think that uh, there's not an easy exit answer. So I don't think that um, uh, demolishment of the euro, or withdrawal of the euro of most of the European countries is a viable option. Um, it would uh, uh, crush the European financial system and the European economies even further and send Europe into a, into a deep, deep recession. So I don't think exit is really an option. So how do you stay? Staying is not easy either. Uh, so it's not like the choices are, um, are obvious. But if Europe decides to stay together, which I think is its really only viable option, it needs to effectively unleash the European Central Bank. The kind of half measures that they've had thus far 
we're going to use a little bit from the IMF. We're going to con construct a European uh, financial stability fund. We're going to uh, do some guarantees, a little bit of guarantees of bank debt. Uh, the market generally looks at those and says, we don't believe it. It's not enough. Um, so I think really what they have to do is make a fundamental political judgment that they're all in. Uh, and that means unleashing the ECB to act as effectively um, as a lender of last resort for all European debt. And that's a huge, it's a huge deal. And the, the ECB doesn't want to do it. And Germany doesn't want them to do it. But I think that's what they're going to end up doing. Thank you for uh, pushing through all the uh, items that you did. Getting back to the European statement, the U.S. has got multiple bubbles in, in interconnected. They have a housing bubble, the consumer bubble, the finance bubble. Printing money, QE, what, what's your position on that? I mean, with Nixon decoupling the dollar from the gold standard, making the U.S. dollar a fiat currency, printing all this money will end up with hyperinflation and default. Um, in, you know, in principle, at some point, yes. I just think we are so far away from having that kind of inflation fear that the much more significant risk is deflation and, and, um, uh, and a return to the depression. Uh, so I was strongly in favor of the Fed's expansion of its balance sheet. Uh, I was strongly in favor of them doing it again. Uh, and then I would be in favor of them doing it again if they need to. Uh, so I'd go for, I was fine with QE1, QE2, and I'd be fine with QE3. Not because not I don't think any of this ever matters in terms of inflation, but the context matters a lot. And the context we're in right now is the cusp of deflation, not uh, hyperinflation. And I should say, you know, this is also driving Germany and its, and, and historically it makes sense, driving Germany in its fear of, of ECB action. They say, we remember hyperinflation, we remember Hitler, no thanks. Uh, and there's a lot of, you know, deep-rooted historical fear of that. But we're in a just very, very different economic context. And I think that the ECB is going to have to uh, get engaged for Europe to pull its way out. Yes? Uh, will the retirement of uh, Barney Frank have an effect on the implementation of the budget? Uh, I think it could. I mean, uh, uh, any of you have... Um, even uh, seen Barney Frank on television, um, know that he is a forceful personality. Um, and, uh, and I had plenty of opportunity to have my chest thumped by him. Uh, so he's, he's a serious, serious guy. He is analytically incredibly sharp, uh, very, very smart, very, very tough and effective in Washington. And um, uh, so I do think that having him absent uh, um, will make it easier for those who would like weaker implementation um, to, um, to have more sway. So I think it is something to worry about and watch uh, and, um, and to keep, you know, have the public keep engaged on. Yes, sir. Uh, following up on that, can Dodd-Frank survive the next Republican administration? Well, can I, can I fight the premise? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think it's I think it's highly I think it's highly unlikely, and I guess more in some ways more importantly, um, most financial services lobbyists think it's highly unlikely that you'd see a repeal of uh, major elements of Dodd Frank, even if uh, there were to be a Republican president, a Republican Senate, and a Republican House. 
unless in the Senate uh, the Republicans, um, uh, you know, take 60 plus seats, um, which is not likely. I mean, it's possible, but not likely. Now, if um, if they don't take 60 seats, if the if the Democrats have uh, 41 seats, or even maybe 40, depending on who you count in the in the on what issue, uh, what topic on the Republican side, uh, you you can't pass any legislation. To um, if you'll pardon me to to take a piss um, without 60 votes in Washington. So uh, so in that sense, I don't think there's that kind of risk. Uh, does it matter in terms of how the regulators, uh, who's who are the regulators, and how they implement their regulations? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you see um, any um, issues with the European Union um, with the current policy architecture, growth um, policy architecture that might uh, prevent effective uh, resolution of financial regulation with the EU? And I mean, well, you mean like all of it? No, I mean, the whole structure is, I mean, any of you who spent any time studying the European system, which I'm sure many of you have in this room, it's like impossible to believe that anything actually happens there, but it seems to despite that. Um, uh, so uh, there's some progress that's been made in replacing um, a incredibly difficult to understand Lomfalusi financial decision-making process with somewhat clearer architecture hierarchy of uh, supervisors, regulators, national regulators, and decision makers. But it is still very, very hard to get anything done. And the, 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 um, uh, the limitations on the ECB are just one example of that. So yes, I think that there are structural reasons why it's hard to act in Europe. Now, the problem with their um, uh, movement on derivatives um, framework, I unfortunately don't think of as being primarily a problem of bureaucratic or political diffusion of accountability. It has been primarily for the last year at least, just a slowdown in interest in getting it done. Um, and that, you know, that to me is worrisome, uh, and I, I hope gets corrected. Yeah. I was just wondering, you know, you've given us a very good picture of Thank God Act and what it's meant to do. It all depends on the people that you have. And um, I'm wondering how you're going to staff and ensure that also the people new and already there will suddenly change the spots that's needed to bring this to fruition? And what it takes to make changes if you find out that it's not working quite the way you expected? Well, first of all, I'm not doing any of this anymore. I'm, I'm happily retired to, to um, Ann Arbor, where I re re returned to my full-time job, which is teaching. Uh, so I'm, I'm no longer responsible for doing anything other than um, helping my students learn things. Um, the um, uh, I do think that the agencies are hiring good people um, and developing, uh, you know, trying to develop cultures that are uh, reinforcing of these views. Um, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has hired now, as, as I mentioned, about 700 people. Some of those people are people who came over, who are really terrific people who came over from existing agencies. And some of them are new people, and they're instilling a new culture in that institution. I think that's very positive. Look, there's, um, there, there's just no way to, um, in, there's no system I know, either in the world of regulation or the world of institutions, in which the people occupying the institutions don't matter. 
actually, that would be a good note. Say. <laughs> the people we invite here matter a lot. And we're really and they have grateful stuff to do. for Michael Barr, and we're in his debt. So thank, thank you. Thank you.